Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. This is the Market Report for the week commencing the 27th of March. Not a particularly fun week. It's been pretty grim. There's been lots of red on the screen all week. And we've seen markets come down to levels that we're not particularly comfortable with and they feel quite unpalatable at the moment but I'll give it to you as they are we're looking at old crop wheat at 185 pounds a ton quite a knocking because it wasn't that long ago we were at 200 the sentiment looks very heavy and it looks pretty bleak on this run-in for the old crop market now the the market is being dominated by a lack of demand the UK physical consumer as it feels at the moment is has got very tidy they've bought themselves they've got themselves covered it doesn't really feel like they're going to feature now for the next couple of months, barring little bits of shorts here and there, but very limited demand. All, if not most, of our reliance is now on the export trade. We've had a very, very busy Jan, Feb and March, which we've discussed in previous podcasts, and the April period looks to be very busy as well, with lots of wheat leaving the country. May and June, the trade merchant shippers are working hard to get those sales on, there is a limited amount of demand from what we're hearing for the, the big boat trade, but we need it to be fully functioning to really push this surplus out. With the best will in the world at the moment, there's a belief that even at full tilt, there will be an additional 500,000 tonnes of wheat that will need to be carried into next year. So on top of the standard carryout of 2 million tonnes, we will probably be carrying 2.5 million tonnes. Now that has been shown in the spread, the old to new crop spread differential you're seeing trading at £15 a tonne. So you're seeing new crop trade at a £15 a tonne premium to the old crop prices. That is absolutely signifying that there is a problem with old crop. Now does that spread get further? Yes, potentially it really could. Could it go to £20 a tonne? The question mark is who wants to carry it? It's got to be carried, but at what price? So for you as farmers, logistically, can you carry it? Will it put too much pressure on you in terms of storage to carry into another year? Segregation, even going back to having empty sheds and being able to fumigate because it hasn't been a straightforward year. The old crop scenario looks bleak, but it could get bleaker and it doesn't look like there's anything to really save that market at the moment. Gone beyond where we all thought, unfortunately, but could get worse, I think is the message. The thing that could save it, certainly, I don't want to be complete doom and gloom, but the funds are carrying record shorts on the main speculative markets, Cargo and Matif in the main. If they feel there's a reason to become nervous, they will come in as buyers very, very quickly and they could move this market significantly. Now, the the two things that would cause that mainly is a weather market. So this is going to be weather market on the new crop. That isn't featuring at the moment. There's nothing for them to be nervous about, but there's still time for problems to occur. 
And the other story, which has sort of tempered away a bit, is the grain corridor. So there's still ambiguity with this, um, whether it's 60 days or whether it's 120 days, but there is grain moving through the Black Sea and it is business as usual. So that's the one to watch that could spook it, but at the moment I'm afraid it's a very drifting sentiment. Feed barley is taking the same pain. The discount has remained pretty statically at around £20 discount to wheat. So we're looking at old crop values, I'm afraid, down at the £165 a tonne mark. From where we've been, it has felt like there's not huge amounts of barley, but it has been eking out and there haven't been supply concerns yet. So if I move on to that, just covering their new crop scenario. So we're looking at feed wheat for November, trading at 198, 199x farm. That unfortunately is looking cheap, but it's been dragged down with the old crop sentiment. All the focus has been on old crop and it's just had that dragging effect. Saying that weather has been favourable around the world, so there are no concerns yet. But to give a glimmer of hope, there is a long timescale left, as we all know, on that marketing season and not quite the same pressures that we are seeing with the old crop. Malting barleys, weather's been near on perfect here in East Anglia. We've got blue skies, we've had some rains, crops couldn't wish for more. So we've seen the pressure, not much more to say than what we have said in previous episodes, but as a value, 230 for a low nitrogen spring barley and 220 for a winter. On the same basis, feed barley for new crop for harvest at about 180. Now, the one that's caused the most pain and grief, really, and I'm sure no merchant or rep has enjoyed discussing, has been rapeseed. Rapeseed's been walloped again, almost continuous days of seeing 10 euro down days. 350 was the X farm price in the middle of the week. We've seen a momentary recovery today. A 10 euro bounce which is lovely to see green on the screen for a change but it brings us up to 360 x farm the only moment of hope for that is there are some very sizable shorts on the french futures markets merchants hedges funds have got themselves in a big open interest now there is 25 days as i'm recording this for those shorts to to get out or they could take it to tender in the main that they will have to get out so there's quite a lot of buying that will need to be done in a short space of time which could then bring some upside to that motif market if 400 pounds a ton comes back on the pitch there will be some mild relief and i think that would be a very good moment to take some cover and close the book on that one but no on the whole i must admit i can't think uh, many merchants or reps have been enjoying this so uh Please don't go too hard and give your rep a kicking. I'm sure some of them do deserve it, but no, we are very empathetic to this and have not enjoyed it. It's been a pretty grim week. But anyway, let's hope for something a bit more positive and let's hope that there is something that occurs that gives us a good rally and um, some more palatable prices. But uh, on to next week. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Advertising on this podcast works. Yeah Grain Central Grain Store is delighted to announce that all available storage capacity has now been sold. If you want sales and success, please contact East Coast Design Studio on 01603 728 978.
And now it's time for the farm chat. Okay, so we're back here again and thankfully we've got part two of our podcast with Julian Barnwell who discovered the Gloucester. And I've got Joe with me still. Hello. And obviously Julian. Good day. <laughs> right. Now, Julian, we'll carry on. So, you know, obviously where we left off was about Joe saying, you know, you had to keep this secret for so long and, and the timescales involved were unbelievable. And obviously it's been announced and we've got the display at uh, Norwich Castle Museum, which I think, I mean, I'm definitely going to go to. I haven't had time yet, but I will. And I think everyone should go to that. But the future, what is the future of the Gloucester, of what you want to achieve with this discovery? And how is that site going to progress? Excellent. So what we've done so far is two key pieces of work called photogrammetry. So we have 6,000 photographs of the site in 2018. Okay. And then last August 2022. So that's, that's given us a 3D profile of the site. Now we're using that information, archaeological information, to prove the site is at risk. So okay. by at risk, the default position for any historic wreck is to keep it in situ, if it's stable. Right. But when you get at risk, which we can prove with this keyword photogrammetry, you then build up in your management plan the future which includes governments. So we've got the governments will be with the Lord Downitz Charity, the Gloucester 1682 Trust, working very closely with Navy Command in Historic England. And then off the back of that management plan, that includes conservation, public outreach, education, of course, research. There's a serious bit of fundraising that needs to be done. Because mm. we haven't done any excavation. We've just looked at the surface and recorded what's on the surface. Okay, so that's important, isn't it? Yeah, because obviously we spoke about all these dis- amazing discoveries, the wine, the spoons. But you, literally, they were just on the surface. Yes, yeah. So you occasionally see a neck bottle, for instance, poking up near a cannon because yeah. the sand's eroded. So you'd hand fanned and you see the bottle and you recover the bottle. We're very lucky to see back in 2015 a chest, a sea chest exposed. Right. Out of that, we got lots of personal possessions, including clothing, women's clothing, Blimey. shoes. And all preserved? Well, not. But they're in good condition because they're in anaerobic right. condition. But we then get them conserved using York specialists and our own conservators. But what's key now is we've got five to ten years worth of work ahead of us, which is the main reason for going public. You know, we're oh, handing mate. the baton over to a charitable trust. Myself, Lincoln and Tani have gone as far as we can. We're escalating public awareness because we need to raise a lot of money. Mm. And every season we'll be well into seven figures of costs, you know, for doing the work on the site and obviously conserving what you find and then ultimately ending up in a museum. So there's lots of work. <clears throat> I mean, National Lottery? With the... Yeah, Heritage Lottery funding. Yeah. So we're at the stage now where the trustees are in place. Yeah. Um, everybody's ready to go. And we're just waiting for the Charities Commission to sign the charity off. So everybody get their pockets ready because we're, we're almost ready for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll do a little appeal at the end of this one. Fantastic. Um, now, when you say that the wreck is at risk, that is from... The shifting sands? Shifting sands, potential looters in international waters. Yeah. The law we operate under is sovereign immunity. So the Navy never abandoned their vessels. So we've got a blanket law there that we will operate under. Right. We've got eyes in the sky watching the area. We keep an eye on the general area through AIS. So any vessel over 24 metres has to give out a beacon, same as aircraft. Right. So we've got our own, <clears> of course, we're dived in sight of every opportunity. Mm. So we're comfortable. But the problem with the site is the sand waves, as you just said, move through and they sweep off artefacts. And so we are losing historical material. Blimey. So the magnetometer isn't like a metal detector. 
So magnetometer is picking up the Earth's magnetic field and you get a deviation in the reading and that deflects a signal yeah. to a laptop. So we pick up that deflection. But it will be non-ferrous, of course, you know, the iron cannons, big anchors, that kind of stuff. But it's not treasure trove like you'd find on the farmer's fields, for instance. You know, it's a whole different world out there. So yeah. everything that comes back onto land from the sea yeah. gets declared to the receiver of wreck. And they then operate on behalf of the finders or the crown. Blimey. There's so, a lot there. I mean, that is really complicated, it is. isn't it? So you physically rescue stuff from the seabed. Yep. You're conserving it. But as soon as you put it onto land... Yep. There's a whole other level of bureaucracy. Absolutely. We then declare it to the receiver wreck. Yeah. And then we hold it in possession on behalf of the receiver wreck, potential owners. But when you get something, if it's a brass porthole, which I've got a few, you declare them, shine it up, and then put it in the front living room and the missus kicks it out. That's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Ends up in the garden. That's fine. Or in the man cave. But when you get to something as important as this, the policies are very clear and well written in the sense that, you know, they need to end up in the National Museum for the nation. Yeah. And that's our, the ambitions of the charity. Because, <clears throat> of course, this is national history. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, there are some of the families are still alive. Yes. Descendants. It, very much. But then you get into a complication. If you find, I don't know, take a piece of jewellery and it's on a painting, it doesn't mean that the family still own it. They have to prove succession through wills. So, right. so that's quite tricky. I know, it's a bit of a nightmare. But this is really ancient English law. Yeah. So it goes back centuries. But the key thing to take forward is about keeping the collection together. Don't sell it to privateers. We've never sold anything. And it's about what you can learn from the site. And it's not all about the sparkly stuff. We're learning so much from the clothing, you know, and the diet. We know we've found animal bones. So there's barrels down there full of what they're eating. It's cattle, sheep. We can see the butcher's marks on them, would you believe? We've done a whole scientific paper. Um, It's phenomenal. Yeah, no, it is. There's so much you can learn from. Because they are the classic time capsule. Everything's locked in. Yeah. And protected yep. from the air degrading it. Yep. Yeah. But we haven't got decks and decks of it doesn't look like a ship. What you see on the seabed mm. is generally about 20 to 22 cannons exposed at any one time. And they've all rolled over to the starboard side. So the weight's shifted over time. But we know there's between 50 and 60 cannons, for instance. So there's lots still buried. Yeah. And we're hopeful. We often get asked, would you raise the ship? What you tend to do is you survey in situ with the photogrammetry but if you've got special carvings or stern section then that's a whole different proposition and you'd raise a lot of money for that project but you don't lift timbers for the sake of lifting timbers it's very expensive yeah but you can record it digitally i mean i remember watching a program about the mary rose when they raised that with this enormous cradle built around it, it and how they lifted it and i think at one point it did drop didn't it and okay we're not going to see that well we don't know because we we haven't done so next year we're hopeful to get permissions to do excavation and we'll check the parameter so the site's about 50 meters by 30 meters in dimension that we see on the surface but the trial trenching similar to what you do on land is where we'll go down several meters to see what kind of structures under there then you build up another project design plan more fundraising and then you go off and do that the following season so it's like a little rolling system yeah. But in between, you need to keep getting lots of money. <laughs> I'll just yeah, emphasise that again. I'm, yeah, I'm, get, I'm getting, <laughs> getting the, the message. On, getting the plug on the money. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, there is years and years of work in front of you. Lots of employment as well. So back to Norfolk, made it clear, well over 10, 15 years, this is a Norfolk story. It's not going to be um, 
in the shadow of the Mary Rose in Portsmouth. Yeah. And Great Yarmouth is a really good anchor point, great maritime history, yeah. lots of opportunities for levelling up, um, conservation facilities. And the Trust at the moment has got an excellent piece of work going on. We're actually looking at what is a sustainable museum at the moment in the 21st century. Okay. So there's a key piece of work going on there, and that's taking in all global museums. So you've got immersive technology. So we've got 4D diving, for instance, what it was like to be on board in the 17th century. All these possibilities for people to learn more about. So it's not just physical objects. There's all these wonderful technologies you can draw in. So That's you... happening right now. Oh, right. So basically, I mean, I was thinking, oh, there's 10 years of work in front of you. But it, it'll just go on and on. Well, absolutely. I mean, Mary Rose is 40 years in. Yeah. Uh, and it's about keeping the public awareness and interest and learning and bringing new objects and information to the table. But we're really excited about that. But of course, the other thing to think about is this could then lead into other discoveries, you know, for other people. And we hope people will start thinking about diving as a passion of ours is to get more people in the water. And that doesn't have to be shipwrecks. It can be corals, the Maldives. You know, there's all these wonderful <laughs> places. Hello, Andrew. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go. A little plug for Andrew there. Actually, I wonder if he would dive. Well, anyway, I'm sure. do out there. It's some stunning corals. Is yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely part of the world. Okay, so you want to get people diving in in general? We've got a chalk reef off Sheringham. Amazing. It's the world's longest chalk reef. And that's just off Sheringham right round to Trimmingham. And that's in two or three metres of water. You know, that's just super special out there. And that's where we were diving at a young age. So there's lots there for everybody. Okay. Now, one thing that is interesting to me is with the site of the Gloucester, is it now sort of, I don't know how to put this, is it marked out with some kind of satellite thing? No. So, no. no, no, you can't see it from the surface, nothing like that. Okay. No, no. And we don't mention depth, so don't even go down that road. We won't tell you how deep it is. We're no. really super protective. Okay. Yeah, we have to. But you've got, obviously, as you say, there are all these things watching over it and, you know, eyes in the sky and whatever. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure there are because. Yeah. Well, you, you know, there's not a bit. Yeah, exactly. There's, yeah. There is so much there. Technology up there, isn't there? Yeah, okay. We've had drones follow us. Really? Yeah. From Sea Pauling, we've had people try and follow us with a drone. We just go off from different angles. And an apology to every diver that we've ever talked to, where they ask where you're going, what you're doing. And we always say, unknown, and we're going a long way. I hope they realise why we had to be a bit secretive now. <laughs> God, the drone's following you is a bit weird, isn't it? I don't know. It's just on the beach. I don't know if it's necessary. I think they're just trying to see if they can go as fast as us. They're not going to make it out there, are they? No, no. I think it was just a race, to be fair. But it's good for the podcast. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's interesting. And I think one thing that I know Joe was going to touch on is this. Yeah, this isn't about the monetary wealth. No, it's the understanding and the learning from it. Obviously, there is, you know, there are people out there that obviously love to own that and they would put some serious money down. But the thing is, the core of it, the essence of what we're trying to achieve and what you're trying to find out. We all think that, you know, we sat there in class and listening to history and think that, what we were told, and that's it, it's all you know, done and dusted, everything's been covered. But there isn't, it's an assumption. And, and when you've got that capsule of, in time, that thing you know, on the bottom of the sea, suddenly you've got a greater, you're touching things that haven't had anything else done apart from a bit of seawater to go through them, and some of them not even that. A perfect example of that, and this is what the professors and everybody gets really excited about, was the 17th century medicine we found. So we found a wooden container with mustard seeds in, I thought it was caviar. I thought, God, we had the jackpot. Honestly, it smelled a bit fishy. But we had that analysed at Camden BRI, food specialists, and they worked out it was mustard seeds. And that was used as an ointment. So if you had a lesion or toothache, 
or spots on your bum, I've been told last night, you'd put that like a cream on your skin and the soothing. Now, the 17th century is pretty basic for them. I mean, they're well into their bloodletting. So we got a porringer where they cut your open and just drained off some blood. That was like the default. But the funny bit, which um, Professor Claire would mind me saying, her favourite is the urine specimen jar. So honestly, we found this and we thought, no, it can't be. It's like what you pee in the hospital. And obviously the Duke was trying to make a bit of a statement because the actual circumference, the diameter, was well over an inch and a half. So, uh, <laughs> But that is in the museum. Pretty, pretty sure uh, Webby would love that. Uh. <laughs> but, but back to Joe's point, this is what you're learning. And I can't see anywhere where 17th century medicine's talking about mustard seed. But then that comes as in brilliantly with the barbers. So you've got the Worshipful Company of Barbers. We're working closely with them. They have lent stuff for the Norfolk Museum. The Vintners, of course, with the wine connection. Then you look at the clothes and the embroidery and the shoemaking. So you've got all these wonderful companies in London who can then come and study what we've found. Yeah, that is all mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, you can just go on looking at the historical impact that it's going to have going forward. You know, what we know, I find it fascinating. So obviously we've got a lot of farmer listeners and they all, you know, you hear about these amazing finds on farm metal detectorists and everything else. I mean, it's a different, that's a different level to how you're operating, isn't it? Very much. Absolutely. Because it's not treasure trove. You know, we're in it for the adventure. We've met amazing people over the years and, and it continues. You know, the numbers just keep increasing. Our passion's been out to sea. For us, that's like get away from work, have some fun. And, and this is just reinforcing the best adventure ever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, one of my friends who's a farmer in Rutland, just down the road from him, they found some huge Roman temple under, a, under his neighbour's farmland. And of course, I think that's all been protected and everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they've had to be very careful, as we said, about people just turning up and just trying to take stuff. I think the hardest thing for maritime sites is there is no vehicle for funding. So for instance, on land, what you just touched on there, the landowner brings in a team, don't they? Then they have to pay them. And so, or even the developers, depending on where the sites are, there isn't a duty to be paid. So there's no way of getting, you have to self-finance. You know, right. you need to raise money. Historic England haven't got enough money, you know, so you need to find corporate sponsors. So that's what the trust is all about. And that's why we've got people in London who will be doing just that. Are you held back by your ideas of what, I mean, to some extent, there's a feeling of ownership because, you're the guys that obviously found it but is there an element of you being now held by bureaucratic behavior or whatever that's holding you back whereas you can see the benefits and you can do so much but are there any restrictions that are so so the unesco so you're on to the policy now the policy is written in 2018 and the hardest thing about that policy and this is why a lot of stuff doesn't happen underwater is you need to raise all the money up front for the project cost now, we know what's on the surface, but we don't know how much you need to do the work underneath the surface. So you know, how long's a piece of string? So what you do is you do it by season. And actually, it's quite lucky for us. We are working in short seasons. So you do your management plan that covers all the governance and what happens to everything. But then you just build up a pot of money to work in the at-risk areas on the dive site. You learn more, and then you raise more off the back of that. So it becomes a rolling vent. But the challenge for ours is going to be pretty okay because it's so significant you know there's so many connections there it's high status and at risk in international waters but you could have for instance the london in the thames estuary and that's within 12 nautical miles that's working with a license agreement with historic england they're finding it very difficult to find money and they've got ships timbers there that should be lifted and measured and conserved but they can't find the money so 
I hope off the back of this, we're testing the UNESCO policies and I hope this is a Paris agreement. I mean, it's international. I'm hoping they can see, here's a brilliant site. This is how we're working through it and things have changed to make it easier for other people. I mean, you know, yeah, the money aspect is key to all of this, isn't it? And as you say, there isn't this huge pot of publicly available funds to do it. So the trust of obviously, they've just got huge amounts of work ahead of them. Yeah, but they've got great connections. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Doors that are opening. I didn't even know there was a door there. Oh, <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, and, and the ambition's there. And we're really right in the middle of it, me, Lincoln and Tiny, and enjoying it and watching these fantastic meetings going on. Um, so, yeah, and there's a fundraiser. They're going to be employed soon. So we've got interviews on Monday. So, yeah, a professional fundraiser working on it full time. God, blimey. Yeah, so I know it was all happening. And there's some great trusts out there. So if you know any trusts, just email me. That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> or Andrew or you guys. I don't mind how it gets to us. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure you don't. I'm sure you don't. So, I mean, obviously, you said you're going to keep diving. Yep. More wrecks in the pipeline? This one. I mean, we just love... There's so much okay. to be done. So we're now professional divers. Big shout out to a local insurance company called Alan Boswell. So Alan was the first <laughs> company to ever help us. And he donated a sum of money where finished off some conservation work on some of the artifacts, but also gave us enough money to go and get trained as HSE scuba divers, professional divers. Right. So we're fully qualified and can go out on the dive site. Okay. Yeah. And that's it then. So you're just going to, this is the Live one. the dream. <laughs> so just going back now at the moment, what's going on in Norwich? So Norwich Castle Museum has an exhibition running till September the 10th. By all accounts, it's hitting all the best records. On the opening day alone, 500 people. That's been the most popular exhibition they've held. Me and Lincoln go there all the time. We've said, actually, if we can't go diving, we're just going to hang out and go meet people. And there's a documentary there, 18-minute documentary movie, talking about our story, our journey. Got all the history, diver trail, and some wonderful artefacts. It's very special. Is there anything else that signpost people to, to you know, look at this and get involved or further afield, obviously? We'd love people to come up to Norfolk or whatever and have a look round, but at the same time, there are going to be people that are further afield and how they can actually source information. So if you Google Gloucester 1682, there's lots on YouTube. You can see underwater footage, for instance, us diving on the site with the Maritime Archaeological Trust, who are the lead people for doing all, all the photogrammetry, etc., and the management plan. So there's lots on the internet already. There is talk of doing a digital tour. So actually, working with the Norfolk Museum Service a little bit later on, because the exhibition's only just opened, the curators are going to walk around and film the exhibition that people can then pay to have a look at. But then we're back to ambitions. We've got a, quite a long lead time for at least five years. So maybe, just maybe, there'll be a travelling exhibition around the country. And that's a key piece of work because then it's reinforcing the Gloucester story and more people can enjoy it. So maybe Blenheim Palace you know, or Chatham or the Royal Navy Museum. Yeah, there's lots of opportunities, and this is what gets put in the management plan, and that's work in progress. Awesome. One thing that just came into my mind, so you said there was 60 cannons. Yep, 50 to 60, yep. Right. How many would have been on the boat in total? Well, again, because she's at peace, yeah. so that there was an exact number. Okay. But good point, there was a whole collection. There's a complete collection down there, which is very unusual. Yeah. Had, we're not aware of any other ship uh, with that full collection. Would you raise them? Oh, yeah. Are the yeah, cannons really, will... Oh, absolutely. Really keen to do that. Yeah. yeah I mean, that'd be quite a moment. Uh, they're about three tons, nine Each feet long. cannon's three mm-hmm. tons? Yeah. Christ. You need to lift them. Yeah. 
So, okay, so the plan would be to, yeah, lift as many as you can. So the, that's part of the management plan, project design plan. You know, you, you've got to be careful because when you lift a cannon, you can make the site unstable because okay. you lifted all that weight. So this is where Gary Monbrun and the team, the Maritime Archaeological Trust, will do all the, well, we're working on that now, but they will assess the site, which is most unstable, and you concentrate on that. There's a whole galley down there, a ship's galley, all bricks and tiles, and we're pretty convinced there's a cannon going right through the middle. And that's actually where the bell came from, that area. Blimey. It could be a bow section, because she only got knocked on the stern. So we just don't know. That's the okay. joy of it. So every yeah. year is going to be a special year. So, yeah, so the stern was hit. Yep. So what, is it mostly complete, do we think? Well, we're do down to lower decks. Over okay. the years, the decks have been swept away. Uh, but okay. we do know at the stern section where the great cabin is, where the orchestra would have been, where the, the Duke was hanging out. Uh, the strong room, all that. Oh, the strong room, what's that? So that's where your stores are. We've seen cannonballs there, for instance, the whole collection of cannonballs. But there's a cannon going straight down, and you can see the caster bell, you know, the button. And because it's going straight down, we know there's nine feet of sand just in that area alone. And there's a big mound, so you get this mound over the wreck, it creates like a sand dune. Okay. So potentially there's lots of goodies there to go and rescue and conserve for the nation. This is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it really is brilliant. What a discovery, Julian. Thank you, yeah. And, yeah, well, I mean, you must be very proud. Well, get me back next year and we'll have an update, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> when Andrew's on Aldi. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, I think what we'll have to do is, because I know Andrew was a bit gutted about this one, but, you know, he didn't have to go to the Maldives, but that's what he chose. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, obviously, we'll keep in touch and as and when things happen. And if you want, I can send you some links to put on your website if people want to find out a bit more. Yeah, that would be good. Do yeah. that and they can let's, just get yeah, straight onto your site. Let's get some links on there. And, obviously, yeah, you know, any potential donors, contact Julian Direct or yeah. us and we can sort it out. For the Charity Trust, yeah, it'd be brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. Thanks, James. Julian, thank you very much. Joe, do you enjoy that? Yes, obviously. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Julian. Thanks, guys. No worries. I will just say, please note, there was very little, you know, political digging going on there. It was a straightforward interview, that one. (laughs) So hopefully everyone will appreciate that. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released. And follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.